in making these decisions. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 through 29. You ready? Let's do it. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray together. Father, we ask uh, that you would draw near to us uh, in spirit, Lord, as we seek to draw near to you with our hearts. Lord, may we all come before you with reverence and awe and wonder and worship, we pray, Father, that as we hear the very words of Christ, that we would give great deference to them, that we would humble ourselves to hear them, uh, to receive them into our hearts, and to, uh, to believe and to obey the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John Bunyan's classic allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, main character is a pilgrim. Later he is called Christian. Uh, he has left his home, the city of destruction, and he's making his way on a very straight and narrow path all the way to Mount Zion, the celestial or heavenly city. And what we find in this good book is that as he is making his way uh, to Mount Zion, he encounters a number of other travelers, uh, some of whom are sort of antagonists to him that are trying to hinder him from, keep, from keeping on on that path, and then others who are great encouragers to, to help him along the way. And uh, one particular man who, who acts as an antagonist to him on his travel uh, is Mr. Worldly Wiseman. If you've read the book, this is one of the early encounters that Pilgrim has on the path. And, and when Mr. Worldly Wiseman sees Christian, he finds that he's very weary and heavy laden with this huge burden on his back. And in addition, he finds him very filthy and wet because he's just fallen into the slough of despond. And Mr. Wiseman, uh, Mr. Worldly Wiseman is trying to help Christian because he thinks that this is just ridiculous that this guy would be in such a horrible condition when he doesn't have to be. Uh, he, and so he points out to him that this is just the beginning of many sorrows that you will face if you continue on this path to Mount Zion in this way, that there's no reason for you to have to go through this. In fact, you will experience even more pain, more weariness, hunger and peril, nakedness and sore, danger and even death if you continue to follow along this path. And so he encourages us to stop. Stop going on this path. It's only going to lead to misery and death. And so he offers him a, another way, another path that just goes off to the right of the, the normal path. And he, he encourages him to meet with the man called Mr. Legality, who lives in the town of Morality 
and where he can find help to relieve him of his burden apart from any suffering. And so when Christian turns out of the way, he goes to Mr. Legality's house. He's on his way to the house, but as he's on his way, he sees this huge mountain that is quaking and is uh, looks like it's about to fall on top of him. And he sees this fiery burning light on, on the top of it, and it scares him to death. He begins to sweat profusely and quakes in fear. And he says, I am very sorry that I ever listened to Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And I wish I never would have gotten off that path. Well, as soon as he says that, Christian is encountered by uh, an evangelist whom ha- had already spoken with him previously and told him about the gospel, told him this path to take to get to Mount Zion. And the evangelist rebukes him sternly and says, says to him, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. And upon hearing these words, Christian repents of his actions, trembling in fear over this grave warning. He returns to the straight and narrow path with joy. Now, if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress yet, you absolutely have to. Outside of the Bible is one of the top three best-selling books of all time. All time. Since the year 1678, over 250 million copies have been sold and read. And we just happen to have a copy in our library. Three copies. Two in the original version, one in the modern English language. We also have a CD version, audio, and we also have a lecture series and video, in case you're wondering. But if you didn't recognize it from the story, Bunyan is actually dramatizing the book of Hebrews in many parts throughout the story. And particularly this chapter, this passage that we're looking at this morning, he quotes directly from Hebrews chapter 12, saying, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking from heaven. It's interesting, I I, uh, once knew an older man who was a Jew in one of my previous churches who had come to faith in Christ and just absolutely overflowed with joy of his faith in Christ. At the same church, I also knew a man, who, a young man who was a Gentile, who got caught up in Hasidic Judaism and began to turn backwards toward Judaism, began to wear tassels on his garments in obedience to the law of God, ate kosher food, and began to worship on Saturdays in addition to Sundays because his parents still made him come to church on Sunday. I'm not overly concerned that most of you are going in that route. Um, However, I think that we all have a tendency at times, especially when Christianity doesn't seem to work out like we want it to, to turn back to a life we once knew that seemed much easier. And for some of you here this morning who are especially of younger age, who maybe perhaps grew up in the church, who never really understood the gospel, never really heeded God's word, you're tempted to walk away from the church altogether, to pursue another life in which you can find happiness and define your own sense of goodness apart from God. I do think that this passage still applies to you. It applies to all of us. Uh, The last warning that uh, the writer of Hebrews gives us this morning is that we all might know where we're headed. 
and to which type of mountain are we headed. He's going to talk about that in a minute. But, and, and how we are to embrace the Word of Christ as it's been given to us in the Gospel. How to live our lives based upon that. So, so for a, a very broad outline this morning, I, I, I want to point out to you, here's what the author's doing in, in, in three movements, if you will. First, he's showing us a very terrifying picture of Mount Sinai. Then, second, he's showing us a a glorious picture of Mount Zion. And then third, he is giving us this grave exhortation not to ignore the Word of Christ, but to cling to the Gospel as it's been given to us in Scripture. So let's start with uh, the first uh, picture, if you will, that he shows us of Mount Sinai. In verse 18 of our text, the author of Hebrews says to the believers, you have come to... You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, a sound of trumpet and terrifying voice from heaven. In the description that's taken directly from Exodus 19 and later Exodus 20, if you continue to reading on after our, our reading this morning, the Israelites, when they first traveled to the Arabian Peninsula where we find Mount Sinai, that's where they received the law of God. Now, for any one of you who has seen, and I think most of you probably, especially the older generation, have seen Cecil B. DeMille's version of the Ten Commandments. I've uh, been watching it, I don't know, I don't know how many times I've seen that movie. Uh, but what always sticks out to me, what I retain, what I remember, is the scene of the parting of the Red Sea, right? That just, it's the outstanding production. At the time, did you know they spent more money on that film than any other film had ever spent money on? It was a wildly... Uh, creative film at the time. Anyway, long story short, they did such a great job trying to portray the parting of the Red Sea, but such a miserable, awful job of presenting Mount Sinai. You see just a very short glimpse of this mountain that's got red clouds on the top of it and seems like it could be a foreboding thing, but immediately the camera pans away from that to show the sin and the revelry of the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. It misses entirely this scene uh, of Exodus 19 and 20 describing the type of terror that the Israelites are sensing just being in the very presence of God. Uh, what we need to understand about Mount Sinai, it, it's the way the author of Hebrews is is using it is as a symbol of all of the Old Testament law, of all of the Old Covenant, and all that it represents apart from Christ. And what God is displaying to the Israelites at Mount Sinai is not meant to encourage them in any way to draw near to God, but rather to keep them as far away as possible because of their sin. Because the way into the holy presence of God had not yet been obtained through the blood of Christ, any sinner who would dare draw near to God would die. Should die, according to the law of God. So similar to the, the flaming sword and the cherubim standing guard outside of the Garden of Eden, this mountain is not meant to portray to you, hey, come on in. It's meant to say, stay away. Because if you come into the presence of God, you will surely die. In this very dark scene, the Israelites can see from afar a divine theophany of blazing and consuming fire. When God reveals Himself to the Israelites, He presents Himself 
as a great ball of fire. Now, what is that supposed to convey? <laughs> it's supposed to convey the hot anger of God against sin. That's what they need to know. That's what they need to see. At the same time, the area surrounding the mountain is enveloped in darkness and gloom to symbolize the shadow of death for any sinner who dares to approach a holy God. Then on top of that, we also see this tempest and shaking of the mountain that, 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 that shows forth God's great power in judgment against sin. It's meant to convey sort of the opposite of creation, the opposite of, of chaos and order back in, from order back into chaos. Everything is shaken to the core because of sin. And then on top of that, we, see these, we hear these sounds of, of thousands of trumpets blowing all at the same time to convey the eminence of God's judgment upon sin. When you read through Exodus 19 and 20, you're not supposed to say, well, that's kind of cool. Other than Cecil B. DeMille's production, if you will, the author of Hebrews is putting the camera right on Mount Sinai and just keeping it there for a while so you can see and feel how palpable God's hatred of sin is and how much His wrath is ready to come down in judgment upon anyone who does not come in holiness and purity. This booming voice then from heaven is, is, is reminiscent, if you will, of God's voice speaking to Job out of the whirlwind. You remember? Where immediately after Job has complained, the sinner has complained unto the God who has made him, saying, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Anyone who heard such a voice from heaven would be scared to death. Immediately, Job said, I never should have opened my mouth. Please don't talk to me. I'm going to die. In fact, if you, if you, even when the God's angels would appear to anyone in the Old Testament, immediately they thought they were all going to die because they were confronted with holiness and they were not holy. We see this even when they're begging Moses to speak with God in their place. Exodus 20, verse 19. They say, you speak to us, Moses, and we'll listen. But do not let God speak to us or we will die. Even Moses himself, even though he was chosen by God to be the mediator between God and men at Mount Sinai, we see that even Moses at time is scared to death. He says after the Israelites had sinned with the worshiping of the golden calf that then Moses had to go back up to the mountain, or I guess he was already on the mountain still. In Deuteronomy 9, verse 19, he's explaining to them what happened after he had heard about this golden calf. Moses said, I was afraid. I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you because he was ready to destroy all of you. And he was quaking in his boots because he heard the booming voice from heaven in judgment against sin. Now, what the author of Hebrews is describing here, this, this old mountain, is, is to remind the Jewish Christians in 
the New Testament church who, who are being written to here, what it would be like for them if they returned to the old way apart from Christ. In other words, if, if, if you want to turn away from the gospel of Jesus Christ and return back to your Judaism roots, do you in any way think that you're going to be able to come and meet with God? Do you in any way think that you're going to taste something of the fellowship of the Spirit? Do you in any way think that you're going to have it good with God again? No. Do you really want to return to that terror, to that feeling of where do I stand with God? Where, what, what's going to happen with my sin? How many animals do I need to kill to cover over my sin? Mount Sinai stood as a symbol for all that the old covenant had commanded, and they could not keep it. It was a good covenant in its time to prepare them for the Messiah who was to come, but anyone who would return back to that old covenant after experiencing the fellowship of God through Jesus Christ would be a fool. The old covenant and the law was great for showing God's purity and holiness and righteousness and judgment, but that old covenant could not help them understand salvation and the mercy of God. Immediately, the sacrifices were instituted merely so that they could live in the presence of God. If anyone would return back to the old ways, they're rejecting everything of God that has been revealed since then. That's the first mountain he wants you to see very clearly. Mount Sinai, the old covenant. Then he points us to Mount Zion, the heavenly city. Of course, the, the original Mount Zion refers to the, uh, the Temple Mount, all the area of Jerusalem, basically the area that David took from the Jebusites as, as part of God's uh, destruction of them because of their sin. Uh, it was the earthly area where the temple would eventually be built, right? So that, that was the original Zion, if you will, in earthly terms. But the author of Hebrews is not referring to that place. Rather, he's referring to the actual temple of God in heaven that that Mount Zion on earth was a replica of. And so he's pointing them to the Jerusalem above. Anyone who is trusted in Christ, the Apostle Paul says, we are already citizens of that heavenly kingdom in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. And in and, and Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 6, he also says that we have been raised up with Christ and seated with him in Mount Zion, that heavenly city. We're already there in a spiritual manner. We're already a part of that kingdom, if you will. But it's, it's of this heavenly city that we sang earlier in the, the hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. We're not singing about Jerusalem here on earth. We're singing about Zion, the city of our God, where we said, the springs of living waters well supply God's sons and daughters, and grace never fails from age to age. And in many of the prophecies concerning Mount Zion in the Old Testament, particularly the one that David read from earlier today, it's painfully clear that they're not referring to an earthly Jerusalem because it talks about Philistia and the Edomites and, and, and all of these foreign tribes calling God's sanctuary their own. That did not happen in the earthly Jerusalem. They're referring to something that's much greater than that. In describing this 
heavenly habitation. The writer of Hebrews is, is not merely picturing a, a bare mountain like Mount Sinai was, but rather he's picturing a, a glorious city upon which God's true temple sits in its great glory and the mountain to which we come every Sunday together as a corporate body. I'll explain that in a minute. Verses 22 and 23, if you look there again, the author says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The word in the Greek that the author of Hebrews uses here that we later refer to as the general assembly, if you will, of, of God's people is a word that was often used in the ancient Greek games, the Olympics, to refer to those who were gathered together for sports to give honor to a false god. But now is, is, is referencing, uh, instead, the people of God gathered together to give glory to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. So again, we, we don't have the Olympics all the time, but we do have football games on Sundays, do we not? And do we not have greater gatherings of people worshiping the football more than we do that worship the Lord? What he's envisioning is, a, is a, a greater gathering, a larger gathering than anything you've ever seen in a football stadium. A massive gathering of God's people worshiping the one true God. And the, the unique features of this great assembly is the inclusion of angels. If you remember in the early sermons that we did in the book of Hebrews, we read about how Jesus is better than the angels, right? And we talked about uh, the fact that uh, even in the Old Testament, the Scripture says, let all God's angels worship Him. Let all God's angels worship Christ. And, and uh, they're the first ones we see in this large assembly of God's people gathered together. But it may not be apparent uh, from the text here this morning, but uh, in earlier on in Hebrews, we, we had read that the, the angels were actually the true mediators, if you will, of the law of God at Mount Sinai. In other words, it was the angels that were there in the terms of all of this terror to protect God's holiness from the people that were there. They were the ones that were conveying, if you will, the demands of the law through Moses, certainly, uh, but nevertheless, even in the, the trumpets being blown, uh, it, it, it says it's just this huge, loud sounds of trumpets blowing. When we see this in the book of Revelation, it's angels blowing trumpets, and they're blowing trumpets to say, you are in the presence of God and you're about to be judged. In the same way, we also see uh, at Mount Sinai that, that these, these angels are warning sinners to flee from the wrath of God. But in their description at Mount Zion, it's different. Notice how they're dressed. They're dressed in festive apparel. They're not dressed in their suit of armor ready to defend God's holiness, but rather they're dressed for a party in order to celebrate God's victory over the grave, but also to celebrate sinners who have been saved by grace. What is it that Jesus says in Luke chapter 15, verse 10? He says, I tell you, there is great joy in heaven before the angels of God, even over one sinner who repents. Can you imagine on a daily basis the type of party that's taking place in heaven when a multitude of sinners have not only repented, but have entered into their rest and have joined that general assembly in heaven and are worshiping the Lord their God. The angels are there to invite them in. The angels are there to welcome them. 
not to keep them back, but to welcome them that they have been justified by the blood of Christ. What a difference Mount Zion is compared to Mount Sinai, you see. And that's the other aspect we can see in Mount Zion. It's not just these angels, but also, he says, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Remember, Mount Sinai, the whole point of the law is to show your imperfections, how you will never measure up, how you will never do enough, how you will never be acceptable in God's sight because your works are evil. But then at Mount Zion, he's declaring them perfect. Perfect. Acceptable. My sons and daughters, he says, whom I love and I cherish the delight of my eyes all the above. This is the gospel on full display in heaven, the final transformation of sinners into saints. Finally, they're glorified. What a difference these mountains make. The faithful members of the church triumphant are also dressed in festive apparel, singing songs of glory unto the God who has saved them. And then there's the God Himself, the God of Israel, the same God. Also at Mount Zion, the heavenly city, he's pictured seated on his throne as the judge of all the earth. But unlike at Mount Sinai, when you see him seated on his throne, the people who are gathered around him are not in terror, afraid. Rather, they are comforted and encouraged that he finally has vindicated them from all that the wicked has accused them of from all of those persecutions that they have endured through all those years, the Lord has said, these are my people. They have been declared righteous. Since the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews are enduring another wave of persecution under the emperor Nero, you can see how this picture of God still being there, still sitting on his throne, still on behalf of his people, would be great comfort and and great encouragement. But the highlight, obviously, (laughs) of Mount Zion is the next part. He says, and you have come to Jesus himself, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. As you know, Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, covenant, the same man who struck the rock in anger when he overheard the bitter complaints of the people again and again, the sinful anger that he expressed, and then also the same man who was not allowed to enter into the promised land himself because of his own sin. Moses could never save you. He couldn't even save himself. He had to look to a Savior. He had to look to someone who did keep God's law unlike him. Jesus, however, is the mediator of a better covenant, a new covenant. One who never lashed out in sinful anger at any of those who constantly said horrible things to him and persecuted him, but actually laid down his life on behalf of rebellious, wicked sinners. Jesus was born in the earthly promised land, unlike Moses, but then He entered the heavenly promised land by his righteous deeds and by the purity and perfection of his blood. 
enabling everyone who would to follow in his train enter into that same abode through his shed blood. Unlike Abel's blood, we talked about this before, Abel's blood was crying out for justice and vengeance against his brother Cain. Christ's blood is crying out for mercy for the same type of people who murdered him. It's a better word. It's a better covenant. It's a better mountain because it's a better salvation in Christ Jesus. The final hymn that we'll sing later this morning, Let Us Love and Sing in Wonder, also another John Newton hymn if you're not familiar with it. But in that hymn, we sing, Let us praise the Savior's name. Why? For He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with His blood. He has brought us nigh or near unto God. You've got to love the theology of the old hymns. can't beat it. It's precisely because the blood of Christ shed for rebellious sinners that the scene at Mount Sinai is a festive occasion rather than a solemn one full of fear and terror. It's precisely because He's there that people are full of joy and gladness because He is the one who has hushed the law's loud thunder. No longer does the law cry out, condemn that man, that woman, because of their sin. Because Christ has died for our sins. But there's one more group of people that's also included on this mountain, in this heavenly scene in Mount Zion. Verse 23, the writer of Hebrews says that you have also come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, this time he's not referring to those who have already passed away, but rather to those who are here on earth in the general assembly that's gathered together in different locales throughout the world, whose names are enrolled in heaven. It's interesting, uh, in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai, we don't see it immediately in the book of Exodus, but we see it later on in Ezekiel, Uh, chapter 13, verse 9, that each one of the people that came with them had their name enrolled in the house of Israel. So in other words, they had their name written down on a piece of paper saying, you belong to the people of God. And we see later on, especially the first seven, nine chapters of 1 Chronicles, all those names that we are so bored by. The whole point of that is to show who belongs to the people of God. In the same way, even in the church today, even though many people don't like it and, and many churches don't do it, The whole purpose of why we have a role as members in a church is precisely for the same reason to continue to show who are the people of God and who are not here on earth. The difference, though, is that in the New Testament, under the gospel of Christ, already they also know that their names are written in the heavenly role as well. They have assurance that their names are written on the heavenly role because of what Christ has already done through His good works and through His sacrifice but it's the same thing. Uh, it says the, 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 the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven uh, in the Old Testament, also Moses, when he confronted Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, he's, he said to this to the Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Same language used again in the New Testament. What does he mean by that? All he means by that is this is my son whom I have loved, I have chosen. He is my son who I have blessed doubly. He has the right to all that I own, all that I have. 
His name is enrolled in heaven. He shares in all of my inheritance. And so what we see uh, in the church today, and this is to me this is profound, and if our, if our churches back in the 19th century would have understood this, it would have made a huge difference in a lot of things. But what, what does that mean? It means that every single member of the church today is considered to be a firstborn son. Based upon our union with Christ, the firstborn son. So what that means is whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're a male or female, whether you're a slave or free, you all receive the double blessing of the firstborn son, the right of his inheritance, and are all co-heirs with Christ Jesus of all that God has won on our behalf. No one here is a second-rate citizen. Everyone is equal in God's eyes as a firstborn son. So for all of you who are born second-born like me, you've just been elevated. You're firstborn now because of your union with Jesus Christ. And what a blessing it is that those who have been declared firstborn children and know that they have their names written in the Lamb's book of life on the roll of heaven, you can see why they want to join in that same party that's going on in heaven. And the way it's described here in this passage is that somehow the saints on earth are brought into that heavenly worship through our corporate worship together. So, if you think some of us are a little boring here, you maybe not think we're as pretty or as glorious as we ought to be, you can't see the angels in the chairs that are open here. You can't see the saints who are already departed and living in triumphant glory are somehow here with us, if not our hearts are raised to heaven to be with them there is some sort of mysterious fellowship in the midst of our worship that we are gathered together to Mount Zion to worship God in all of His glory. This is no ordinary gathering that you're a part of today. Don't forget that. And especially don't forget it next Sunday when you're thinking, ah, maybe I don't need to go. There's no other gathering in the world that is as glorious as what you have right now, right here on Sunday. Finally, somebody agrees. This is it. You don't want to miss this. Again, uh, we didn't sing it this morning. I ran out of awesome hymns to sing this morning. There's too many to choose from, but another one, the church is one foundation. Listen to what we're actually saying in the theology of what we're singing. The church is one foundation, yet she on earth has union with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. In other words, there's a mystic, mystical relationship, mysterious, something or another going on with those who are already departed and at their rest and with those who are still fighting here on earth. And he says, as a result, oh, happy ones and holy, we're referring to those who are in heaven. Now we're saying, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, in love may dwell with Thee. What we're saying is we want to taste more of the love of Christ that they taste now. We want to experience more of the fellowship that they're enjoying now. Give it to us here. 
as we worship together as the church. That we might have our hearts raised up to heaven into that heavenly assembly. For even though Mount Zion is located in heaven, there are outposts of Mount Zion all over the world. You have to see that. Everyone who loves the Lord Jesus gathered together with two or three gathered in his name are not meant to worship in Jerusalem or in Samaria or some other mountain in the Arabian Peninsula, but wherever they worship, they worship in spirit and truth by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what hope and glory there is for those who have seen Mount Zion and are not afraid anymore of Mount Sinai. Since we have received such a great inheritance in Jesus Christ and have come to that fellowship of the Spirit and have seen the the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than Abel, how could we possibly return to Mount Sinai? How possibly could we return back to the life before understanding the gospel in which we felt like we had to do something in order to earn God's favor? Why would we ever go to that? What a dreadful experience that is. You you all have experienced it, I'm sure. You, You know what it's like to feel like, I'm a sinner, I stand before a holy God, what must I do to be saved? And no matter what you do, you can't save yourself. You'll never be good enough. And so Jesus says, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Look to Christ and you'll know the blood of Christ that speaks a much better word than the blood of Abel. This is the main concern of the whole book of Hebrews. He keeps saying it again and again, but in this final warning, he gives us one last word in which he urges us to cling to the gospel through the word of Christ. Uh, that's our third point this morning. Verse 25. He says, See to it, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. This is the classic argument from the lesser to the greater. If God poured out his wrath upon a people who ignored his word in the old covenant, how much more so do you think he will unleash his wrath upon those who have rejected his gospel? Now, that doesn't make sense to some of you, I imagine. Um, There are many today who have heard a lot of bad theology Don't just go listen to anything you hear on the internet, first of all. Um, But there's a lot of bad theology, and some of you have grown up in in your own churches, and I know I've had some of it myself. But there are still a number of people who mistakenly assume that God is somehow different in the Old Testament than He is in the New. That His character somehow changed from the Old to the New. And some have even bought into that old ancient Marcionite heresy. There was a a man, Marcion, who basically taught that the God of the Old Testament was a wrathful, vengeful, jealous God, and that's all he was. Whereas the God of the New Testament is this gracious, loving God, and they're at odds with each other. If you you pick up the Bible and you think that way, you've misunderstood the whole Scripture. Because it's the same God all throughout. The writer of Hebrews says this in the next chapter in reference to Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he he says it the same way in reference to our text this morning when he says again in verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. Don't forget that. 
He is love. He is grace. But he's also a consuming fire. You can't just pick one or two attributes of God and only look at those and ignore everything else and make a God in your own image that you think that you want to worship. He is still a God of vengeance. Still a God of wrath. Still a God of judgment. Still a righteous and holy God. In fact, when he uses that expression, our God is a consuming fire in verse 29, he's quoting directly from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, when Moses says to the people of Israel, after they have taken lightly the Lord's commands, he says this, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Notice very clearly that in our text, the writer of Hebrews does not say God was a jealous God, God was a consuming fire, but that he is a consuming fire. In the same way, verse 26, the author not only says that God shook the earth with his voice at Mount Sinai, but he's promising, and this is a promise that goes way back to the prophet Haggai, he said, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And what the prophet was referring to, even back then, if you look back at Haggai chapter 2, he's referring to the final day of judgment in which everything will be shaken in which all the world, all the nations of the world will come under the holy judgment of God. Do not think for a minute that the God of love and grace does not also still bring judgment. The day of judgment is coming. And it's coming for all the wicked, for all those who have taken lightly the word of God, and especially those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 13, verse 13, another passage the Lord says, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His anger. This is yet to happen, my friends. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, the apostle says, that day, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done and all will be exposed. All of these are referring to the final day of judgment in which Christ, the God of grace and love, comes in holy wrath and judgment upon the earth. At that time, when this takes place, when this shaking of the heavens and the earth takes place, there's only one thing that will not be shaken. And that's the kingdom of God. That's Mount Zion. That is God's holy church. Now, he doesn't mean that uh, they won't uh, be moved in some way, but it won't be removed as everything else will be removed. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And of course, what he means by acceptable worship is worship in the name of Jesus Christ. Worship that's done with spirit and truth and heart and love for God, gathered amongst His holy assembly here on earth, worshiping the Lord in fear. Again, we sang earlier, glorious things of the earth spoken. Zion city of our God. In that, in that hymn we said, On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's wall surrounded, thou mayst smile at all thy foes. Now, what does this mean, especially for the original recipients of this letter? They have plenty of foes that are persecuting them at this moment. And he's saying, it seems as if all the world is shaking. 
Where is your sure repose? It's in Jesus Christ. You can even smile at your enemies knowing the love of Christ. That's exactly why the author is encouraging the believers to trust in Christ, to stay with His church, not to fear those who are persecuting them precisely because they have hope in the gospel. They're not afraid of the wicked emperor Nero. It's funny, someone said uh, not too long ago, I don't think, um, that people today name their dogs after Nero and they name their sons after Paul. That should tell you something about the shaking of kingdoms and the unshakableness of God's church. You remember when the Roman Empire fell and our country will eventually fall like that too. The Romans were afraid and they began to wonder if they had abandoned their pagan gods and that's why all this took place. But the the very peoples that had invaded them, the barbarians, the vandals, and all these other tribes, they, all of them, representations of all of them, came to faith in Christ after destroying the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire fell, the kingdom of God grew. Now, I know in the world today, there's quite a bit of shaking of kingdoms going on. And that that makes us uh, worry a little bit about our pocketbooks and a lot of other things as well. But ultimately, what he's trying to tell you here in this passage is that our comfort, our courage, our resolve, our strength, our perseverance, it all will come down to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not turn back to Mount Sinai. Don't turn back to the old ways. It won't help you. It'll just leave you with more dread and fear and hopelessness. Turn to Christ by faith, and you'll know something of the peace and the joy of the Lord and the fellowship of the Spirit that already the the saints in heaven enjoy that we also taste. But the final hymn that we'll sing today, and we'll we'll sing in just a second, um, is sort of the the application that he's giving. So chapter 13 is going to, how do you apply all this now? For those of you who've been asking, how do you apply all this? Next chapter. But in the meantime, he's saying, let us now with reverence and awe worship the Lord. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and praise. The final hymn is another John Newton hymn. Let us love and sing and wonder, praising the Savior's name, for He is the one who has brought this great gospel of hope in the midst of a shaking world in which kingdoms are tottering back and forth and we have no idea what tomorrow holds, but Christ is our sure repose. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would help us to look to Christ by faith, to find comfort, to find a refuge, to find hope in the midst of a dark world. Lord, help us not to in any way even play with Mount Sinai and the old ways that we once thought that we could do something make a wager with you in some way that if that we would just try to do better we would try to work harder that we would try to do something that would earn your favor lord help us to see that our sin will not allow us to do that and christ can do nothing else but to please you obey you live for you wholeheartedly help us to trust in his perfect works and his perfect sacrifice we pray in jesus name